Here it is. From deep inside your radio. From London, England. London calling. Wishing uh, all of our American listeners a very, very happy Independent Contractors Day weekend. The, uh, the old title has been, I think, eclipsed by a decade of changes in the economy. A decade of disruptions, don't you know? I'm just wondering why the only industry that it's not okay to disrupt with the loss of jobs and loss of income and everything is, um, is the petroleum industry. But that's for later. Now, let's follow the dollar. Well, here's good news for those who uh, think of themselves as employees rather than independent contractors. Apple, Google, Adobe, and Intel have uh, reached a $450 million settlement that's been approved by a federal judge. It's a settlement with employees of those companies. Judge Lucy Coe gave her approval to the deal that will see the tech giants compensate workers for potential lost wages, not Las Vegas, lost wages, related to the illegal no-poaching pact that the tech companies had engaged in. The judge said the assembly was fair, adequate, and reasonable, overruling objections by filed by six of the plaintiffs, members of the class action. After paying off the lawyers, the money will be distributed among the 64,000 class action members making up the plaintiffs in the case. 56 people opted out, reserving their right to sue individually. Apple, Google, Adobe, and Intel were the four remaining holdouts in the case over a large-scale, uh-oh, this word used by the British tech website, The Register, a large-scale conspiracy, don't you know, not to poach each other's employees in an effort to slow escalating wages. So you, competition for, for labor, can't have that, not on Independent Contractors Day. The packs were said to involve executives in the company's highest ranks, including Steve Jobs. Will that be in the uh, new biopic? I don't think. In 2010, the Department of Justice of the United States of America found the companies had illegally colluded, opening the door for employees to sue. The four companies put to, uh together a $325 million deal rejected by the judge who said it didn't go far enough to compensate the lost wages. I didn't say lost. Lucasfilm, Pixar, and Intuit were also implicated in the case. They negotiated their own settlements years ago. Pixar, it's so cute. How could they? Facebook was reportedly approached to take part in the plot, but the website's then chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, I think she still is, is she? I don't know if she's selling her book. She declined the invite. It's the nicest thing I've ever heard Facebook do. Uh, if you f- do the math, it's not a lot of money that each of the individual 64,000 individuals gets. But, you know, it's a, a slap on the tech wrist. And speaking of speaking of financial shenanigans, the government of the this particular place right here, the United Kingdom, said it will look, seek, that is, to relax anti-money laundering controls. They've been, you know, HSBC, a bank headquartered here in London, 
was, uh, I think, the recipient of the largest fine ever levied by the United States against uh, a bank of any kind for money laundering. The total levied in money laundering fines by the United States, I think, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times that levied by the British government. But that's too much for the British government. They want to save British companies 10 billion pounds, 15 billion dollars over the next five years. Britain will look at ways to make the rules, which are designed to block terrorists and criminals from using the financial system, which HSBC allowed for years, designed to make uh, rules more efficient and effective, according to the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. The department says it wants to protect the country without putting disproportionate burdens on legitimate businesses. HBC, HSBC and Standard Chartered, two British banks, have been fined almost $2.3 billion by U.S. authorities for failure in their money laundering controls. The uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer said uh, a couple months ago he wants to draw a line under a period of ratcheting up larger penalties for banks and establish a new settlement with the financial services industry. We, uh, the new review is about making sure the rules we have to protect our strong financial services industry from abuse are not unintentionally holding back new and existing British business, says the British Secretary Sajid Javid. I want firms to come forward and tell us where regulation is unclear or the enforcement ineffective. Oh, they'll do that, sir. They'll be glad to do that. If I know firms, that's one thing they'll be firm about. Hello, welcome to the show. Woman, get your hell out of the flesh. You'll come here swelling your face. You don't know that this is a dance, but you stand up in the place like if you in trance. This is carnival, all right. Everybody tight, tight, tight. And the music blasting like hell. Every day with your tulips swell. I tell you, dance, dance. Look, woman, dance, dance. And if you don't know how to dance, you jump and prance. If they jam, you jam them back. And if they bounce, you bounce them Woman, get up and shake your leg. You dance, you don't have to beg. If have a plenty Monday, hold on to one and make you play. Carnival is with pet. Man, easy to get. If any woman try to jam you, don't be afraid, you jump them back too. I tell you, dance, dance. Look, woman, dance, dance. You better jump and dance like pepper in your pants. And if you squeeze, you
From London, England, home of the Notting Hill Carnival. They had that last weekend. I missed it again. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, news of our friend the Adam. The Adam uh, was uh, held back in the States by a, vi- uh, a, uh, a visa problem. We hope to have him back. Well, I hope to be back in the, in the States where he's uh, resting his little, uh, his little protons right now. Dateline Tokyo, a misguided faith. What? A misguided faith in the complete safety of atomic power was a key factor in the 2011 Fukushima accident. That's according to the UN nuclear watchdog in its most comprehensive report on the disaster. Some more guided faith, or well-guided faith, don't you think? The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, pointed to numerous failings, including unclear responsibilities. Of course, unclear is an analog for nuclear. Among regulators, not an analog, an anagram. Among regulators, along with weaknesses in plant design and in disaster preparedness. That's all. (laughs) Weaknesses in plant design and disaster preparedness. Don't you feel better now? But wait... Possibly the biggest factor was the, quote, widespread assumption in Japan that its nuclear power plants were so safe that an accident of this magnitude was simply unthinkable. That's the conclusion of Director General Yukiya Amano in a 1,200-plus page report. And yes, I read every... No, I didn't. A quake sparked tsunami, as you know, swamped cooling systems there at the thing. The worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl. The IAEA report published this week criticized safety assumptions by the nuclear plant operators that were not challenged by regulators or the government. Oh, now you want the regulators to challenge the industry? Why didn't you... Maybe you should... As a result, the quake-prone nation was, quote, not sufficiently prepared for a severe nuclear accident, unquote. Not like us, because we have... Operators assumed there would never be a loss of all electrical power at a nuclear power plant for more than a short period and did not consider, quote, the possibility of several reactors at the same facility suffering a crisis at the same time, it added. Yeah, because they're all located at the same place, so they would obviously not have the same thing happen. Since the accident, Japan has reformed its regulatory system to better meet international standards. It gave regulators clearer responsibilities and greater authority, said the IAEA head. He got IAEA head on. There can be no grounds for complacency about nuclear safety in any country. Some of the factors that contributed to the Fuk accident were not unique to Japan, he said. Who was he looking at? I can't see his eyes from here. Dateline Seattle. The U.S. government has failed to adequately protect crews involved in the decades-long cleanup of the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State. Make your reservations now. Leaving workers sickened by exposure to toxic vapors. That's according to a lawsuit filed this week 
by the state of Washington. Washington. They're, they're usually so nice. For years, Washington workers have been exposed to noxious fumes and chemical vapors as they clean up the federal government's nuclear site at Hanford, says the state attorney general in announcing the suit. Enough is enough, he said. Nah, I don't think enough is enough. More. More before enough. He says the health risks are real, and the state is taking action to ensure the federal government protects these workers now and in the future. Hanford has 56 million gallons of nuclear waste. Would you like some? Give them a call. They're in 177 underground tanks. Nothing can happen underground. We know that. By the way, in case it hasn't been pointed out to you by a broadcast medium personality lately, uh, we, uh, we we inhabit... A, uh, a thin crust on a molten planet. Just just to remind you how stable everything is. Uh, several of those uh, underground tanks, by the way, have known leaks, according to federal officials. And that's a known known, in the Rumsfeldian matrix. The U.S. Department of Energy, which owns Hanford, that means you and I own it. So maybe you, you'd like to take some of that nuclear waste off uh, your hands, off my hands. Ugh. Uh, the Department of Energy is responsible for cleanup at the site, including the hiring of contractors and workers to extract the waste from tanks for safe disposal. It sounds like a job anybody could do, really. The uh, planned new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point in Somerset, England, right over here, just south of where I'm sitting. And it's good sitting, let me tell you. Uh, that new nuclear power station has been hit by another setback with its developer, EDF, admitting the project may be further delayed. This is so unusual for the whole. The news came as the French energy group, EDF, said a more advanced sister project in Normandy would now not start operating until 2018 at a cost of 7.3 billion pounds, 11.1 billion dollars. It was originally slated to open at 2005. It cost, oh, about a quarter. Of that amount. So that's uh, only 15 year delay, and uh, <laughs> no definite schedule has been given for power to be switched on at Hinkley. Make your reservations now. But it means that the uh, facility, that's a $37 billion, 24 billion pound facility, which still awaits the formal go ahead, may not be ready by 2023, a date that has already been put back several times. Come on, give us the power. A decision that had been widely expected to come this October even though the final investment decision, the FID, has been pushed back from the initial forecast, the construction time will stay the same, which means that the commissioning date will be updated. (laughs) We're in final discussions with the British government and our Chinese partners. The Chinese, they're killing us with this. We hope to make this final investment decision as soon as possible, said EDF's chief executive. The latest problem follows continued speculation, according to the Guardian newspaper, that China General Nuclear Power Corporation... Every word in that name makes me trust them more. And China National Nuclear Corporation were pushing the U.S. government, the U.K. government for concessions before committing to an investment at Hinkley. What kind of concessions would those be? Like guaranteed, guaranteed uh, price for the power generated there that might well be well above the market price at the time that the power is generated? You think? That never happens in the nuclear business. Critics have repeatedly said the told the government it was foolish to rely on a new generation of nuclear power stations to meet Britain's energy crunch. Those are delicious, by the way, with the nuts, because such huge projects have a record of coming in late and over budget. The critics are such critics. Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station 
in the United States. Got its latest grade from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's not good. Pilgrim's lack of progress. The plant, which has been under increased scrutiny due to a number of unplanned outages, will continue to get additional inspections from the NRC, according to a letter from the regional administrator. The plant move, The decision moves the plant into the repetitive degraded cornerstone column, column four of the NRC's action matrix. I love those movies. According to the NRC spokesman, the plant had been listed only in the degraded cornerstone column, column three. What is this, a regulator or a Chinese restaurant? In late 2013, as a result of unplanned shutdowns and unplanned shutdowns with complications that year. During a December inspection last year, the NRC found that Energy, the plant's owner, had not adequately evaluated the causes of those shutdowns. Hey, there were shutdowns. Who needs to know? That's a, that's, a, that's a gotcha question, why it happened. And that some corrective actions had not been completed as intended or were closed out prematurely. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, they worked just... Pilgrim is now ranked at the bottom of the performance list among the nation's commercial nuclear reactors. Look, somebody's got to be at the bottom, don't you think? Really? You know, it's an iron law of thing. A distinction it shares with a pair of energy-owned reactors in Arkansas. The NRC found it took over a year for Pilgrim to evaluate or take corrective action for several of the unplanned outages in 2013. Those have now been dealt with, but additional problems have come up. The duration of the original inputs combined with the repetitive nature of the new finding highlight persistent weaknesses in the Pilgrim's corrective action program, which have contributed to repeated unplanned scrams. <laughs> that wakes you up when you hear that word, doesn't it? Unplanned scrams. It's okay. It's just a scram. The new inspection, according to the letter, will help the NRC decide if operation of the plant is acceptable and what additional actions the agency might need to take. NRC inspectors will make more frequent site visits and hold quarterly performance reviews. That'll teach them. The letter includes the warning the NRC may take additional action up to and including a plant shutdown. Well, it seems like they're, they're heading towards that with the, with the outages themselves. They're working on that. You don't need to. NRC, relax. Pilgrim and Japan's government, as you may have heard in the news, lifted a four-and-a-half-year-old evacuation order for the northeastern town of Naraha that had sent all of its 7,400 residents away following the Fuk disaster nearby. Naraha became the first to get the order lifted among seven municipalities forced to empty entirely due to radiation contamination. Oh, that old thing. The central government has said radiation levels in Naraha have fallen to levels deemed safe following decontamination efforts. According to a government survey, 53% of the evacuees from Naraha, 12 miles south of the plant, say they're either not ready to return home permanently or are undecided. Some say they've found jobs elsewhere over the past few years. Like Barbara Bush says, you know, they're better off. Oh, no, sorry, that was New Orleans. While others cite radiation concerns. Will you let go of... God, keep hammering, banging away at that. Naraha represents a test case. Most residents remain cautious amid lingering health concerns and a lack of infrastructure. That's according to fizz.org. In the once abandoned town, a segment of a national railway is still out of service. The tracks are covered with grass. Mmm, grass. Some houses are falling down. Wild boars roam around at night. Wouldn't you like to meet a possibly radioactive wild boar as you return to your home? That's a, that's a welcoming. Only about 100 of the nearly 2,600 households have returned since a trial period began in April. 
Last year, the government lifted evacuation orders for parts of two nearby towns. Only about half of their former residents have returned. Clean, cheap, safe. Too cheap to return to. It's our friend, the Adam. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen. A newly published research study that combines effects of warming temperatures from climate change with stream acidity projects average losses of up 10% of stream habitat for cold water aquatic species for seven national forests in the southern Appalachians of the United States. Published in the online journal PLOS1, the results represent the first regional assessment in the U.S. of aquatic habitat suitability tied to the combined effects of stream temperature and acidity. Previous research has shown that stream-dwelling species in the southern Appalachians are particularly vulnerable to climate change, and many cold-water species are already shifting their ranges in response to warming temperatures. Headwater streams, which are the coldest available habitat in these areas, are often assumed to be ultimate refuge for cold-water species, but many of them are also acid-sensitive, and many headwaters of the southern Appalachian region are already too acidic to support them. Too bad, Trout. Rethink your... uh, your habitat needs next time, won't you? Global plans to curb carbon dioxide are well below what's needed to keep temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius, according to a new analysis. The work of researchers from the Climate Action Tracker, a consortium of research institutions, they examined the commitments already made by governments to limit warning. warming. The CIT, CAT rated seven of the 15 submitted carbon plans as inadequate to keep temperatures below the accepted level of dangerous warming. The analysis was released at a U.N. climate negotiation meeting in Bonn. Countries have agreed, as you know, to submit their national plans to the U.N. before big climate talks in Paris in December. Of course, it'll be cold in Paris in December. That'll focus the mind. So far, 56 governments have published their intended nationally determined contributions. China, U.S., and the U.U. have already submitted their intentions in this analysis. The CAT looked at the plans of 15 countries that between them account for almost 65% of global emissions. Seven, including Australia, Canada, and Japan, were said to be inadequate, not considered fair contributions to limiting warming to two degrees. Six, including the U.S., the EU, and China, they're killing us, were said to be medium meaning they're consistent with the target. Two countries, Ethiopia and Morocco, were said to be sufficient in line with a two-degree goal. Ethiopia and Morocco, they can do it. According to the analysis, the commitments made so far would see temperatures rise up to three degrees with greater impacts on sea level rise and the frequency of extreme weather levels. Many countries with significant emissions of CO2 have not declared their hands so far, including Indonesia and Brazil. Brazil's a little bit worried with something else, which we'll hear about moments from now on the broadcast. Good news for polar bears. In news of the warm this week, climate change accelerates ice melt in the Arctic, and polar bears may find caribou and snow geese replacing seals as an important food source, according to a recent study published in the journal PLOS1. The research is based on new computations incorporating caloric energy from terrestrial food sources and indicates that the bears' extended stays on land 
may not be as grim as previously suggested. So why did I wear that stupid polar bear suit to be in that film? More good news. Scientists have developed a simple process to treat waste coffee grounds to allow them to store methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. The simple soak and heating process develops a carbon capture material with the additional environmental benefits of recycling a waste product. This is in the journal Nanotechnology. Or nano-nanotechnology is wrong. No, he wouldn't have. Methane capture and storage provides a double environmental return, removing a harmful greenhouse gas from the atmosphere that can then be used as a fuel that is cleaner than other fossil fuels. All you have to do is heat the soaking the waste coffee grounds in sodium hydroxide and then heating to 12 to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit in a furnace. doesn't say where the energy comes from that. Tea, probably. And Climate change will do something interesting to a key group of ocean bacteria known as trichodesmium. Trichodesmium, scientists have discovered. Trichodesmium, called trico for short by researchers who have equally as much trouble pronouncing it as I do, is one of the few organisms in the ocean that can fix atmospheric nitrogen gas, making that nitrogen available to other organisms. It's crucial because all life from algae to whales needs nitrogen to grow. A new study from USC and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, shows that changing conditions due to climate change could send trico into overdrive with no way to stop, reproducing faster, generating lots more nitrogen. Without the ability to slow down, however, trico has the potential to gobble up all the available resources, which could trigger die-offs of the microorganism and the higher organisms that depend on it. They bred hundreds of generations of the bacteria over the course of nearly five years in high CO2 ocean conditions, predicted for the year 2100, researchers found that increased ocean acidification evolved trico to work harder, producing 50% more nitrogen and grow faster. But the problem is they can't turn it off even where they're placed in conditions with less carbon dioxide. The adaptation apparently can't be reversed over time, something not seen before by evolutionary biologists. And worrisome to marine biologists, according to the lead author of the study, losing the ability to regulate your growth rate is not a healthy thing. Yeah. In uh, other circumstances, it would be called, oh, I'm over here. It would be called cancer. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, hopefully, no. We've got the ultra modern neck. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the wrong thing. That is the wrong thing. And it's still the wrong thing. So I'll just uh, fish around here, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't mind, until I find the right thing. Because the right thing is the right thing. Isn't the world nutty with the numbers and the stuff? It's news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Riversole Jr. Blame Jim. Japan's preparations for the games will be discussed moments from now. No, let's discuss them now. Japan's hapless preparations for the 2020 Olympics have suffered another embarrassment after organizers decided to scrap the game's official 
logos amid accusations of plagiarism against designer Kenjiro Sano. Only days after brushing aside allegations that Sano had based his emblem on a work by a Belgian designer, the 2020 Olympic Committee ditched the design amid new allegations that Sano used other images without permission in his presentation of the logo. About face marks the latest in a string of controversies surrounding Japan's hosting of the Games. In July, it, ba- it abandoned British Iraqi architect Zaha Hadid's design for a new stadium after costs soared to $2 billion, almost twice the initial estimate. And now moving the focus to Rio, organizers of the 2016 Olympics in Rio have now agreed to test for viruses in Rio's sewage-filled waters. But even if they find high virus counts, organizers say they have no plans to move venues. Olympic athletes, reports the Associated Press, have little clout. Some sports don't have alternate venues, and sports federations have deep financial ties to the International Olympic Committee. Most athletes have remained quiet even after the AP released a five-month independent study showing high levels of viruses at Olympic venues for sailing, rowing, canoeing, triathlon, and open-water swimming. About 1,400 athletes will compete in the hazardous waters. The head of the Rio Organizing Committee promised to introduce viral testing this week, saying the most important thing was the health of the athletes. American Alex Meyer is among the few who've spoken out, a 2012 Olympian, former world champion distance swimmer, he wants the open water venue moved from Copacamana Beach. He didn't qualify this year, therefore feels free to speak. I totally support moving it, he told AP. This is a little bit of window into why on many fronts the Olympic athletes feel like they are just pieces of meat. The IOC don't care if we are comfortable or safe. They're just putting on a show, and we are replaceable. Unquote. There is no solution to get rid of the contamination before the Olympics open. Contamination is a public health crisis that could take decades to dissolve. And canoeists at a recent Olympic test event complained this week about the polluted water at the venue, most spoken, outspoken about aquatic plants that tangled with their oars and rudders. German canoeist Franziska Weber described the watercolor at the Olympic canoeing venue as red and brown, not the typical watercolor. She joked that the effect on boat speeds of dragging, dragging weeds along was like running up against a wall. water is reportedly, frequent reports indicate, full of objects, including sofas, televisions, and tons of dead fish. The General Secretary of the International Canoe Federation characterized the polluting water as presenting very little risk to athletes. The statistics point to the fact that falling in the water and drinking a little bit of it from the lake isn't a major health risk, he said. So drink some, sir. I'll watch. Because it's the Olympics. It's a movement, and we all need one, every day. From CPR, public radio for the rest of your senses, this is Said and Done. Said and Done, CPR's weekly audio magazine of the arts and the artsy. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington, where the arts go to live. The design of mascots, those icons that may represent sports teams or 
Even major sporting events is a billion-dollar business. But mascot design is also an art form. And our guest today is an artist whose creations may represent one of the world's largest and currently most controversial events, the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Sergio Salgado, welcome to Said and Done. Well, thank you, Milton. Such a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Sergio, I noted the air of controversy that surrounds these Olympics. Your designs weren't announced as the official mascot designs last November. I uh, know that's right, Milton. Uh, last year, the committee unveiled designs that represented native plants and animals of Brazil and were named after two Brazilian music giants. Mm. But uh, there were second thoughts Given what's been going on with the preparations for the game since then, there have been so many publicity about uh, problems in the Olympic venues, especially the water venues around Rio. Well, you're referring to the persistent problems with the pollution of the bay where the sailing and other aquatic events are scheduled? Mm, yes, and it was uh, thought that maybe the mascots could help uh, put a happier face on these stories to reassure visitors and their kids that these games will be fun no matter what's in the water. After all, uh, barring any uh, unforeseen accidents, all of our spectators will be on dry land throughout their Olympic experience. So, were you trying to reassure fans about the safety of the water? Oh, no. That's for public health officials and other such dignitaries. No, my job was just to put a, a spirit of play back in the foreground because staging the Olympics costs so much that if it's not about fun and play and happiness, uh, they really become a political football. And football is really the country's national sport. Yeah, that's right, but not relevant. Well. So I designed new characters to put a happy face on these stories, uh, to, as we say in Brazil, uh, take the lemons and make lemonage. So your characters are... Well, the mascot for the Olympic Games is Effluvio. He's happy, he's playful. As you can see, he's a one-eyed green fellow who looks like the creatures that live at the bottom of lakes and bays. Well, he looks a little like uh, drawings I've seen of the uh, so-called Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> yes, but he's got a big, happy smile. He's got green hair that looks like uh, tangled seagrass. He's got a dead fish in his left hand, and he's hoisting a sofa with his right hand. Mm. Now, are those symbols of some of the sporting events or of the virtues embodied in athletic excellence? Uh, no, they're things that you'll find in great numbers in the bay. Mm. Uh, they're going to be there come next year, so we celebrate them lightheartedly in the spirit of fun and good sportsmanship. Well, how exactly do they represent sportsmanship? Well, uh, the fish was swimming at the absolute peak of his ability in trying to leave the bay. Mm -hmm. And the sofa is where the champions rest after their victory. This is how I visualize it. And uh, Effluvio shares that vision with the world's children. And to be uh, ultimately environmentally friendly when the figure is manufactured for souvenirs, he's made out of materials rescued from the bay itself and completely sanitized. Now, he's the mascot for the Olympics. That's right. 
but you also designed a new symbol for the Paralympic Games, which will also be staged in Rio. Yes, he's uh, Effluvio's best friend. His name is Poopy. He's a happy-go-lucky fellow. He, he looks like a big cocoa bean, very jolly. Well, and, and, and looking at this drawing, it, it uh, seems as if he's wearing a hat that's uh, somewhat reminiscent of what the old uh, movie star Carmen Miranda used to wear. Yes, she was a big favorite in Brazil. Uh, before she went to Hollywood, she always wore a hat with a fruit on it. Uh, Poopy has fruit and vegetables and maybe even little pieces of meat on his hat. So he represents everything that people eat to get big and strong and compete in the Paralympics. And he's brown. Yes, like the cocoa bean. And, of course... And his name is... Poopy, a very popular name in Latin America, which denotes fun, laughter, and congenial association and an appreciation of art and music and drama. Poopy is a born leader and a visionary. There are 460 people named Poopy in the United States. This is, this is all on the Internet. Has the Brazilian Olympic Committee officially accepted Fluvio and Poopy as the New mascots for the 2016 Games? Uh, they're having discussions with the manufacturing licensees to see if they can retool in time to make the vegetables and the fish look right. Well, they're m more stylized than ultra-realistic. Yes, they're in the spirit of a, a cartoonish kind of sea sprite. And, uh, and, and you uh, mentioned environmentally friendly. Mm. Is Poopy going to be manufactured out of anything salvaged from the bay? <laughs> no. No, I've been advised in the strongest possible terms against even suggesting that. Sergio Salgado, we'll be looking for Effluvio and Poopy next summer in Rio. Uh, so too will I. Thank you. And for today, that's all that's been said and done on Said and Done. We had help today from the Creativity Consortium, finding the algorithms that make art for you. I'm Milton Getzler. In my 25th year of slushing my sibilants, join us next time for another Ride on the Right Side of the Brain on Said and Done. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio.
This is the show from London, and now news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Well, Rebecca Brooks, who was the uh, flame-haired head of Rupert Murdoch's troubled tabloid newspaper, the one where several reporters and at least one editor have been convicted of phone hacking celebrities and others to uh, eavesdrop on their uh, cell phone conversations, although she herself was exonerated because she didn't know what was going on. She was the the head of the thing, see. She didn't know what her reporters and editors were doing. One of her editors was Andy Coulson, the editor of the paper, and later spokesperson for British Prime Minister David Cameron. He knew. She didn't know. Anyway, she's back. Rupert Murdoch, who uh, at one point when he uh, arrived in the middle of the controversy about it, arrived here in London to testify, said, what was it, what was it? What were his what was his, what was his priority? He pointed to Rebecca Brooks and said, "Her." Uh, she left the company, got a sixteen million pound payoff. You know, a nice little uh, salute. Now she's back. She's been appointed chief executive of News UK, which publishes Rupert's newspapers in the United Kingdom. She'll be in charge of the Sun, which she used to edit the uh, tabloid that. Uh, was most involved in the phone hacking scandal. The News of the World was closed down. It was a Sunday-only paper replaced by a Sunday edition of The Sun. And The Times and The Sunday Times. Yes. Distinguished newspapers all. She also edited that News of the World. She said, I'm delighted to return. It's a privilege to be back. No kidding, babe. No kidding. Her return return sparked criticism from... uh, the opposition Labour Party, and from the campaign organization Hacked Off. The shadow culture secretary, that is the Labour Party's culture secretary, he's not in government, therefore shadow, he was a victim of News of the World phone hacking, said her appointment was ludicrously premature, adding, Rupert, quote, Rupert Murdoch has just stuck two fingers up to the British public and the thousands of people whose phones were hacked by News International, the, the preceding company. Hundreds of ordinary journalists lost their jobs when Mr. Murdoch closed the news of the world, but it seems Rebecca Brooks is to get very special treatment, unquote. The chief executive of parent company News Corp, sorry, Nice Corp, said, her expertise, excellence, and leadership will be crucial as we work to extend our relationship with readers. By listening in, no, not by doing that. The uh, joint executive director of Hacked Off, which represents victims of phone hacking, said this could only happen in a dynastic company where normal rules of corporate government governance simply do not apply. On a related topic at News Corp, the former head of security for Rebecca Brooks says he will blow the whistle on Murdoch's UK newspapers the day after the announcement of Rebecca Brooks coming back. In a video updated to YouTube, Mark Hanna, who was acquitted last year along with Brooks, plotting to pervert the course of justice, claims he was extremely close and trusted by executives at News, sorry, Nice Corp, and he now wanted to show how, quote, underhanded they had been. He was the director of security at the company. Brooks received the 16 million pound payout. Hannah was made redundant after the trial and received 30,000 pounds from the company. I'm now standing up against those that sit back and treat us all with contempt, the Murdochs and Brookses of the world, said Hannah in a two-minute video on YouTube. He is now unemployed and living on benefits. News of Nice Corp, ladies and gentlemen. Nice people. 
doing nice things. And now, the apologies of the week. No relation. We're so sorry. Dayline Asheville, North Carolina, and Asheville, Asheville high school teacher has issued a tearful apology after anti-immigration signs that were part of a class assignment were placed in a hallway outside her classroom, leading to angry reactions from students and parents. The signs were part of teacher Jesse Reek's assignment for a civics and economics class. One side said, illegals go home, another read, America is for Americans. There were other signs that prom- promoted unity in the country, with slogans such as, we are one. Reek apologized for what she called a poor choice to display the assignment in the hallway. Students, parents, and community leaders gathered in the school's auditorium, demanding to know what consequences Reek will face. The meeting held to address the matter was supposed to last 30 minutes. People refused to leave until they could speak. The school has not released any additional information on the outcome of the meeting. Dayline Ashburn, Virginia, the wife of Washington Redskins general manager Scott McLaughlin, has apologized for, quote, disparaging and unfounded comments on her Twitter account about an ESPN reporter. Redskids issued a statement on behalf of her on Wednesday night in which she acknowledged making the remarks, which said the reporter exchanged sexual favors for information. I deeply apologize for the disparaging remarks about an ESPN reporter on my personal Twitter account. The comment was unfounded and inappropriate. I have the utmost respect for both the reporter and ESPN. Quote, that apology never mentioned the reporter Diana Russini by name, but a statement issued by ESPN said in part, Diana is an excellent reporter who should never have to be subjected to such vulgar comments. The woman's husband is entering his first season as general manager of the Redskins. He's got enough problems. Arby's has apologized to Florida's Pembroke Pines Police Department after an employee at one of the fast food chain's locations allegedly refused to serve one of the department's police officers. Their officers was refused service at an Arby's location Tuesday evening when trying to order food. Well, that's what that is at, at the restaurant's drive-thru. The officer was in uniform and in a police vehicle. The Arby's employees said they weren't going to serve the officer because they were a police officer, said the spokesman for the department. He said the employee did not specify why he or she might have had any animosity against police. We take this isolated matter very seriously as we respect and support police officers in our local communities, said Arby's spokesman. We'll be following up with our team members to be sure that our policy of inclusion is understood and adhered to. Unquote. Well, then why don't you serve donuts? Dayline, maybe they do. Dayline San Jose, three Northern California jail guards have been arrested after an inmate under their watch was found dead of multiple blunt trauma, authorities said Thursday. Santa Clara Sheriff spokesman said the deputy deputies remain in custody without bail. The medical examiner said that Michael... Tyree died of multiple blunt force injuries, visceral lacerations, and internal bleeding. Santa Clara, Santa, Santa Clara County Sheriff Laurie Smith, her voice breaking in tears in her eyes, apologized to Tyree's family and said the disappointment and disgust I feel cannot be overstated. She was flanked by 18 uniformed officers and at least another dozen members of her agency in plainclothes attending the news conference. She called the three officers accused murderers although exactly what happened leading up to Tyree's death remains murky. Dateline Durango, Colorado, there's been strong reaction after a sheriff's deputy's sexual comments about a newspaper reporter were caught on her voicemail. Deputy Zach Farnham 
returned a call and left a voicemail for Durango Herald reporter Chase Olivarius McAllister. He went on to talk about her body with two colleagues, not realizing he hadn't hung up the phone properly. The conversation was recorded on the reporter's voicemail. He starts talking about her breast size, among other things. Not hot. I mean, she's got an okay body, the deputy said. Giant boobs, another deputy said. Effing giant dude, the deputy replies. I mean, not like quadruple Ds or anything, but at least a solid set of Ds, probably double Ds. La Plata County Sheriff Sean Smith has apologized to the reporter. The editor of the Durango Herald condemned the language, calling the situation disappointing. She's a woman. Amy Mastas. The sheriff understands the enormity of the situation, she said, and is taking it seriously. Yeah, it's at least a D. Walmart has apologized to an Iowa mom for refusing to print photos of her breastfeeding her children. Tom Brady of the New England Patriots said he is sorry that the NFL had, had to endure the whole Deflategate episode, now apparently in the, in the rearview mirror. And in a long interview with MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell, this week, Hillary Clinton asked repeatedly whether she was sorry about the email flap. Yeah, there's a flap on email. Uh, said she was sorry for the confusion. Um, as you know, the problem uh, revolves around her using a private email server located in uh, the, the Clinton's Chappaqua, New York home for her official business, uh, which... She had originally said she did just because uh, she didn't want to have two devices, one for her private email, one for her official email. She apologizes for the confusion and says in the future she will use two devices. No one said yes. No one said no. No one said stop. So I said go, a government matter, a private detail, both went through the self-same email, made a mistake, won't do it again, now I know just where to say when, not my own server, not a private address, the quest for convenience, just made a mess So I won't be trapezing I'll stave off a crisis I won't take it easy I'll just use Two devices Two devices Like two sets of keys, it's like wearing two watches. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world, by the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London. Around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it. HarryShearer.com and KCSN.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like not having misguided faith if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh.
a typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans and Adrian Bonham here at Global Radio in London for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshare.com. You may have heard Rick Perry doing it again, saying this week, a broken clock is right once a day. More new Rick Perry sayings at my Twitter feed at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to view from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station for the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from London.